The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our guest today, special guest today, is E. Toby Boyd, the president of the California Teachers Association, a uh, veteran school teacher, and took over last year as a CTA's head, I think, in what can only be described as a interesting and turbulent period for the CTA over the last two or three years, uh, politically and financially and legally, and there's a lot going on. And I wanted to welcome you, Toby. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Tim. Or is this John? I don't know which one's which. John's the one that'll be talking a lot. I'm the one that's uh, just running the recording machines. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I babble a lot. So, also, by the way, full disclosure: I'm married to a teacher. Oh, wonderful! And um, now we, now everyone knows, John. Now everybody knows. She's in the Sacramento City Unified School District and has been there for gee many many years. So, one question I wanted to ask you is about uh, school reopenings. Uh, there was a lot of exposure uh, paid to an Orange County Board of Education, County Board of Education <clears throat> decision a few days ago, four to one decision, to get schools back up and running and uh, reopen them uh, or open them. But the question is, what authority exactly do they have to do that? And in fact, the local school districts really have that kind of operational control and their trustees can decide. <clears throat> and as I understand it, most right now don't want to go into the fall with with open campuses and a couple I think LA and San Diego already decide they're going to do it uh, online by distance learning is you have any thoughts about that well um, the letter that I sent to the governor the, the superintendent of public instruction also the leaders in the house and senate stated that CTA's position is that schools will not open until they're safe they should not open until we are guaranteed that they are safe and what safety looks is like PPE, social distancing, um, necessary monitoring, contact tracing, uh, ventilation, hand sanitizer and washing, cleaning of, you know, deep cleaning every night, you know, just making sure that they're clean, the desks are clean and the areas are clean. Those are just part of the things that we are saying that's needed in order to make sure that our students, our teachers and educators and our communities are going to be safe. And that's, our, that's the number one priority of ours, is safety for our members, students, and communities. Did you have any response from the legislative leaders or from the governor on this? Was there any uh, either phone or letter? Or? Well, not in writing, per se, but the governor did mention yeah. it in one of his um, t- noon briefings that he was in receipt of the letter and he understood the, the uh, need and desire to make sure that we open safely, but we didn't get anything to my knowledge in writing, no. Did you, do you have any feedback from your local, uh, from the local districts uh, via your own folks in the CTA, for how the districts are viewing this? Do you get any sense, any, are they sending any signals about whether reopening is on the table or whether they're going to not do it and act with prudence as far as the fall goes, as far as the pandemic goes? Well, uh, most of the communications that I've had have been with my associations within the uh, the union. And they have been very positive in the sense that they were happy that we took that position. 
They have shared our letters with the various districts, and as you mentioned earlier, that Los Angeles and San Diego Unified have decided to go into distance learning in the beginning. And if I'm not mistaken, Sacramento City Unified School District has decided to do so. Uh, they did it last night, if I'm not mistaken. So the, um, there are numerous uh, um, districts deciding to do that because they're looking at the facts. They're looking at the science and what's best for their communities. The coronavirus is going up. It's, it's you know, on the uptick instead of going down and being stable. So most people understand the urgency of making sure that everyone's safe, and that should be their priority. Do you think the quality of learning um, in distance learning versus face-to-face, mano-a-mano learning in a classroom where a, a student and a teacher talk directly to each other, do you think the quality of distance learning uh, is there yet? And should there be some sort of statewide standard as it relates to distant, distance learning and curriculum, that kind of thing, for the whole, for all of the school districts, or should this also be a district-by-district district, uh, decision? Well, I'll, I'll state this, is that nothing replaces the in-person educator-student interaction along with these other classmates. So nothing can replace that. That's the first, and that's, uh-huh. the, that's the most important. Now, because we had to go to the distance learning in March, that was a very quick turnaround, and we had to do it like an emergency, basically, because that's basically what they did. They shut us down and said, okay, everything's closed. We're going to go from brick and mortar to distance learning. Not many schools, and that's what we realized, not many schools have the capacity to truly do that on a dime. But they've gotten better, and professional development and other learning tools have been placed in front of our members by CTA. And I know that some districts are starting to do the professional development in order to bring up the quality of the programs that they have. So yes, we do need to make sure that they're rigorous. We need to make sure that they are truly doing what they are intended to do is that that's educate. However, in the beginning, it couldn't have happened because it just happened so fast. I know um, you've been in the classroom many years. You're an experienced kindergarten teacher. You've been in the Elk Grove district. Uh, I, I look at distance learning, and I'm wondering, is there, are there age brackets where it works and, and brackets where it doesn't work? I, knowing what little I know about kindergartners, say through the third grade, it's hard to imagine them disciplined enough to go through a distance learning program. I'm just envisioning being online or responding to instructor, I guess, via conference call or Zoom or or that kind of thing. It's just hard to imagine young kids like that being amenable to that kind of a program. Older kids, I can certainly see it. Do you have any thoughts one way or the other? Well, you'd be surprised at how astute our younger age children are in terms of their abilities to navigate devices. I, I, again, I uh-huh. don't think anything could take the place of having that child in front of their kindergarten educator. However, when I was in the classroom, we did utilize the computer lab and they were able to manipulate the computer in order to go to sites and do various tasks. So it's, it's not as if they can't. It's just that their time span, just like uh-huh. anyone else, if they were a kinder in the classroom, is probably narrow. So whatever happens on that screen will probably have to be a little bit, um, I would say, shorter in time span in order to keep their attention. 
So I don't think it's it's impossible. Uh-huh. I think it, it's going to be challenging, yes. But again, you have a five-year-old in front of a screen. You have to have a parent or a guardian or someone watching them, assisting them to do that because um, they uh-huh. naturally can't be home by themselves at that time. Is there a drop-dead uh, deadline cut off for when districts must decide or which way they're going to go? I, I assume they still have some time now, but is there a particular day time that you know of uh, the district should be having made this decision by a certain time so they can get ready for the fall? Is that, you know what that might be if there is one? No, not that I'm aware of because each district is acting independently. Uh, we have over a thousand of uh-huh. them and every single one of them has a bargaining unit that they have to negotiate with because these are working conditions that they have to negotiate with. And whatever timeline they come up with will be the timeline that they're going to um, navigate in order to make sure this happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, switching gears just for a second. Uh, the, obviously, the CTA, 325,000 members, is a major political force in the state and has been, it seems, forever. Uh, this year, you folks are, in, are interested in a ballot initiative that would basically set up a split role. It would tax residential properties and business properties differently. In effect, it would amend Proposition 13. Can you speak to that a little bit and why that initiative is of interest to you? Well, Proposition 15, because that's the name of it, and it's schools and communities first. What it does, it it goes and reclaims dollars that corporate um, entities have utilized through a loophole in Proposition 13. Uh So there has been about $12 billion a year that has not been going into communities in the school system for um, since the proposition passed, basically, if I'm not mistaken. So that's what the initiative Uh does. It doesn't change anything for um, homeowners, uh, small businesses, farms, agriculture, they are they are not going to be changed in what the the spirit of uh, Proposition 13 was originally. So none of those are going to be touched. If a business is under $3 million, then they're not going to have an impact on it. If they're over $3 million, then they're going to be um, reassessed every three years, if I'm not mistaken. So what it's going to do is going to put vital funds back into the communities. It's going to help local school districts, local local municipalities, and it's going to provide services that they should have had all this time and they've been starved. And basically, it's going to really be an impactful, positive impactful um, situation for those communities of color because they have been starved a lot longer and more so than those in affluent areas. Do you think the time is right um, to do that now, over the years, Proposition 13 has been sort of the, like Social Security on the federal level, level. Prop 13 has been viewed as a third rail. Uh, you touch it and you die. Prop 13 just has been there since June 1978. Right. And over the years, it's been attempted to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been a, there have been attempts to change it, but they haven't really gotten anywhere. Is this the time? Is the time ripe now to do it, you think? Um I personally feel that it is because we have a broad coalition of of not only um, unions but community groups that are supporting this initiative. 
And this proposition, again, mm-hmm. it's going to help the communities in which they're located, and that's the important thing. And because of that, um, I, I really, truly feel that well, what's going on in our society right now, along with the fact that um, education's starving for more funding and you know, social service, um, the safety net that's there for the communities are also being strained. It's going to help them and us make sure that we have what we need. So I think the time is right, actually. The national ranking of California schools, um, I know it used to be very near the top. This is many years ago. It went down slowly, uh, and I don't know where it is now. Are you talking in terms of funding? Uh, yeah, well, in, yes, in terms of uh, per-pupil funding, uh, the rank, I think this is from the National uh, Conference of State Legislatures. I could have that wrong, but I know there have been, <clears throat> excuse me, it went from a very high level to a very low level, and I think it's closer to the middle now. I may be wrong there, too, but um, is that a function of Prop 13's passage, original passage, or are there other things that work here in terms of funding? Uh, and if Prop 15 passes, are, will funding be push California back up the ladder? Well, the funding that's going to be placed back into schools, it's going to be about $4.5 billion. Now, if we were to actually, well, okay, let me start over again. We are actually in the lower quartile of fun, funding per people throughout the United States. Okay, we were down like 47, 48 through the investment that the state has given and taken priority and education during the time when they could. It bumped us up to probably the low um, 40s, maybe low, uh, high 30s. But I know that we were still down, down further than what we should be. Proposition 15 will bump us up a little bit more. If we were to truly get the funding that we need in order to truly be up in the top, we would need an additional $50 billion in investments in public education. So this uh-huh. is a small step in what we truly need in order to truly fund our educational system. So it's, it's not going to be something that's going to be the magic bullet to save it. And um, we need more funds for education. And that's just the, the, the matter of the fact. Traditionally, in, in Sacramento, bond proposals and borrowing proposals tend to do better during good times and not so well during bad times. If we're going into a recession, we may already be in one, but if we're heading that way and heading even deeper into a economic malaise, does that affect the chances of Prop 15 passing and getting by in, uh, in uh, November? Well, I'm, I wish I was really astute in the political world in terms of passage of propositions. All I can say is that we have a large, broad coalition that's truly working diligently and on making making sure it passes. It's going to take a lot of folks to truly be on the ground working to make sure everyone understands the importance of the proposition. If everyone does what they possibly can in terms of reaching out to all of the residents in California the best they can, I truly feel that they will understand the need and they will see the urgency and it will pass. Uh, let me ask you, talk about funding, just let me ask you one, uh, another question that I was thinking of a couple years ago, uh, mid-2018, I think, the, the Janus decision um, 
came out, Janice versus Ask Me, which basically affected unions. Before this decision came out, it, um, people thought that if, in fact, it was upheld, then the unions would face a great deal of uh, pain because they would not be able to collect mandatory fees from people uh, who are not members. And it affected unions, many unions, and I think the CTA as well. I, I saw one story, the CTA had lost about eight million bucks from, because people who did, who did not want to pay union dues or pay dues to support the collective bargaining. But at the same time, CTA increased membership, which I thought was interesting. Is that basically correct? And if so, what, how's that bode for you in the future now with uh, maybe having a funding restriction on you in place for a period of time? Well, what we did after we um, received that um, judgment, basically, decision, we realized that we really had to go out into our membership and talk to the people that were not signed up with um, CTA. And so we made a diligent effort to go and start speaking to folks. And doing that, those people that thought they were actual members realized that they were not, and then they signed up, and thus we increased our membership. So as I was saying is that uh -huh. okay. folks um, who back before Janice that didn't want to be a part of the union, they had an opportunity to opt out and then they could have they could um, move the dues that they would normally pay to us to a charitable contribution or it would just go back to the general fund. But they didn't have to actually be a part of the union itself. So they had, they had options, basically. Do you have a sense of uh, new employees coming in to the teaching profession, uh, where they are on joining CTA or not joining CTA or not paying dues? Do you, how is, do you have some idea of what percentage of those coming in uh, favor CTA? Well, we try to reach and touch bases with every new person that comes to, edu to the educational field. And by doing so, we give them what we can offer in terms of what we support, the benefits of being a union member. And we've had a great success so far in increasing our, our membership numbers. So, you know, I, I can't say what their mindset is entering it, but I really feel that they understand the importance of it. And they know that because of it, they do have um, particular due process rights that they are afforded because of the union membership too. Great. E. Toby Boyd, thank you very much for joining us today and taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. And Tim Foster, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, John. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, John. Thank John. And this is John Howard saying goodbye, and we'll see you next time around.